You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I am back today on another episode, a follow-up episode of Derms and Conditions with Matt Cyrus. And, and Matt, in this last presentation that he gave, talked about headache being sort of a general and then a specific type of headache. Well, on that last podcast with you, Matt, I got a Zyrus headache because there was so much information I was trying to digest. I had to go back and think it through because there were so many great pieces of information that were clinically relevant. So uh, I'm prepared now, Matt. I'm in the ring. I'm ready to go and learn more. So let's move on to the type of patient. We talked about patients with localized eczematous dermatitis, and we were framing our discussion. When, when is it atopic dermatitis? When is it contact dermatitis? Might it be something else? So we're off of the localized group of patients with eczematous dermatitis, like the hand or the face, whatever case may be. And now we're that patient that has scattered. We're not talking about the six-month-old or the two-year-old, you know, with classic textbook, you know, headlight sign. And We're talking about, you know, adults. Focus on, there's a large group now of people that come in with eczematous dermatitis, and they have scattered patchy areas of... Eczematous dermatitis. So let's get into that group on on how you approach them. Yep. So the you know, and I, as I said last time, I, I walk into that visit chronic spongiotic dermatitis. I walk into it with the idea that it is most likely atopic dermatitis, but we've got to think through the sebderm, contact derm, CTCL, psoriasis, scabies, photosensitive dermatoses, that kind of stuff. So first, I'll say I you know couple of the things in the AAD list are, are pretty straightforward, right? So ichthyosis, we're going to recognize if, if somebody's got an ichthyosis. Photosensitivity dermatoses, uh, I, I hate to say it, are, are very uncommon in my experience. Usually a photodistributed dermatitis is more an exposed skin dermatitis. So it's more that there's you know pollen, air pollution, something like that. Maybe contact dermatitis is more likely causing an exposed skin dermatitis. Uh, you know, scabies, one of the uh, pearls for scabies that I have now. Um, I have no financial uh, conflict with these people. There is a company called Vicor Scientific, V-I-K-O-R Scientific. Uh, If you look them up, you can hit contact us. Uh, And they now run a PCR for scabies. And so essentially, if I have any suspicion of scabies, what I will do, you basically do scrapings from six different areas that look high yield to you. Uh, you just put all of the how scrapings. How deep do you have to take the specimen? Just normal normal scraping like you would for scabies. You're just trying to get the same depth that you would for, for normal scabies. Uh, I take six different areas. You put all, all six areas. You're scraping into a single urine cup, sterile urine cup. And then you send them those scrapings and they run PCR on it. And so it, it is much more sensitive than uh, scraping and looking under the microscope because if there's any scabies DNA there, so if, if we scrape somewhere where a mite had been, uh, you're going to get a positive DNA test. And so that's my favorite way now for ruling scabies in or, in or out if, when I suspect it. So are, are you looking for lesions that you suspect to be burrows? Because these people have a lot of secondary reactive yeah. lesions where there may not have been a mite or eggs. Yes. And, and that's why you're doing six different areas. You're kind of scraping a broad area uh, for each of those six uh, areas. So you're, you're trying to catch cast a very wide net. 
to because all you need is if there's any scabies DNA there, you've sent your diagnosis at scabies. And, and how sensitive is it? Well, the the best number, so there's no great number for it, but it, it should be the case. So this is the idea of scabies PCR has been around for years. Uh, and when it first came, when it first was published, maybe in the uh, probably around 2010 somewhere, uh, they they said that if you take six scrapings uh, from high from what you consider high yield areas, you should have a sensitivity of about 97 percent. Now that has not been I've not seen data around the sensitivity of this particular, but this is the only place I know of where you can get scabies PCR done. Uh, and I've had a number of cases where uh, I didn't find any mites, but then I did get a positive and they got better whenever I treated them for, for scabies after we got that PCR back. How expensive is the test and how long does it take to get it back? comes back in about three or four days. Uh, I have not had any patients get a bill for it. So they do bill insurance. But so far for me, it's been if, if, it, if it wasn't covered by insurance, the, the company ate the cost, kind of like Castle Biosciences does, I think, uh, for their stuff. Right. So now the patient, that test is negative. You didn't see any mites, eggs, feces, yep. and the PCR is negative. So now where are we? So now I'm, you know, I'm more or less thinking, and, and if it's a really atypical case, uh, doesn't look like very typical, obvious, oh, this is sponge derm, uh, right? So if I'm thinking maybe this is psoriasis that's exematized, or maybe it's eczema that's got some psoriasiform component, maybe I'll biopsy it. You know, if there's anything that suggests CTCL to me, I'm going to biopsy it. Uh, anything that would, would I, age I've, alone though suggest CTCL because you see we always hear you know it could look like eczema for a long time which so, it does right so he, he so maybe so I I do not believe that we need to do a biopsy prior to making the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis I I think that uh, we can make the diagnosis based on our clinical judgment but if there's anything atypical that's not just, boy, that looks just like sponge derm, that is very reasonable to do a biopsy of it. Now, part of why I'm not that worried about CTCL uh, is that the data that we have around the atopic dermatitis drugs, uh, it seems like they, if you do put somebody with CTCL on an atopic dermatitis drug, it seems like what it does is unmask the CTCL doesn't make it progress. So there are some cases of CTCL progressing, but those were people with known CTCL who were then put on a, a I, you know, dupilumab. When, it, when it's, uh, we can't tell, we've done a, uh, uh, and then it, it seems like what happens, the, the drug gets rid of some of the dermatitic component. Now it becomes more clinically and histopathologically classic. So I, I'm not worried about, oh my God, what if I put some, what if I, somebody's got nonspecific undiagnosable CTCL and then I put and them I, on it. Or a, I cause CTCL, the, how, the sky is falling. You don't, you're not concerned about you that. Are un, you are unmasking it, making it more diagnosable. Uh, the psoriasis versus atopic dermatitis, the problem there is the biopsy, right? I, I, I'll give you the biopsy report. If, if you just see one of those people, you can just call me and I'll fax you the biopsy report without a biopsy. It's going to be a psoriasiform epidermal hyperplasia with minimal to moderate spongiosis with a superficial perivascular lymphocytic infiltrate with scattered eosinophils could be eczema, could be uh, eczema or psoriasis. How much do you how much do you charge for that report, Matt? <laughs> I'll send it to you for a nickel, Jim. All right. <laughs> the, right so that's going to be your biopsy, and so it's not going to give you a solid answer. Uh, 
and, and so those are patients that I actually end up kind of thinking of it as a diagnostic therapeutic trial. So likely what I'm going to do if they're, you know, essentially all of the atopic dermatitis drugs we have, whether to, so topicals, so not so much the TCIs, but, uh, you know, the topical JAK inhibitor, uh, the topical uh, aerohydrocarbon modulating agent, the new topical PDE4 inhibitor, they all work for both atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. So, so treating the two diseases topically is relatively similar, but treating them systemically I'm going to, you know, if I, if it looks more atopic to me, I'm going to put them on an atopic dermatitis biologic. If it looks more psoriasiform to me, I'm going to put them on a psoriasis biologic. And then I'm going to give it three to six months and see, did they get better? And if they didn't get better, then I'm going to switch. Now, the, the other thing that you can do in those situations, JAK inhibitors work for both. Uh, and so I, I'm most certain they're going to get better on a JAK inhibitor. When you say JAK inhibitors, you're talking about the JAK inhibitors that are used to treat atopic dermatitis that are primarily Janus kinase yep. 1 and Janus kinase 2. You're not talking about the TIC2 Correct. So TIC2, we don't have any real data correct. on yet if it, if it works for atopic dermatitis. But right, uh, upatacitinib is, is FDA approved for psoriatic arthritis. So we know it would work for the cutaneous manifestations of psoriasis as well. Uh, abracitinib and upatacitinib look mechanistically and clinical efficacy-wise, I basically think of the same drug. Uh, and so I think either one of them is, is going to, I think that's what I'm most certain somebody's going to get better on, but then I got them on a JAK inhibitor. So I'm, you know, we're, you know, they're the same drug mechanistically. Yeah. There are some fine differences. But purely right? in terms of having treated lots and lots of people with both, I would not be able to tell you if you said, Hey, I put this person on a system. Here's 50 people. I put all of them on a systemic JAK inhibitor, 25 on on which one? I would, which I would be like, I don't, yeah. you know, if some of the people who got nausea, I'd say, oh, that was probably abracitinib. People who got acne, I would say that's probably upatacitinib. But in terms of just how well it, how fast and how well, I don't think I'd be able to tell the difference. Right. They would. The, the pattern of response would be the same. Yes. Okay. So let's go. Let's go. Let's get into the treatment room because you know I've been I've been trying to keep up running through the corridors of Matt Zyrus's mind. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's a marathon. It's, it's a, a scary marathon. place. It's, 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 it's a, a scary place, and so is mine. But right now we're in yours. It's very. It's it's helpful. So let's walk through treating the patient now. Well, first let's let's talk about the one other possibility that I was saving for last: uh, contact dermatitis. Uh, so I am not a real believer that these people need to be patch tested prior to, to treating them for atopic dermatitis. I am going to make sure that they're using what I would call very low allergenicity products, and so uh, the the products that I like. So soap, I like bar soaps, and so. Uh, very rare that I have ever seen allergic contact dermatitis from Dove Bar, uh, so Dove Unscented Sensitive Skin Bar, Cetaphil Bar, CeraVe Bar, Vanacream Bar. I think all four of those are very reasonable bar soaps to try. Uh, so I'm going to get them on a low allergenicity soap. I'm going to make sure they're on a very low allergenicity moisturizer. And so I, I've got a couple of those that I recommend. Uh, so first, uh, CeraVe's Original Moisturizing Cream and Original uh, lotion. So both of those uh, are very good. Then we've got uh, a Vino Eczema Therapy Daily Moisturizing Cream. And so this is from a list that I generate that I keep around that is from CAMP, the Contact Allergen Management Program from the American Contact Derm Society, where I put in all of the reasonably common allergens, right? Fragrance, formaldehyde, methylchlorosethiazolinone, propylene glycol, uh, you know, all of the common glucosides, 
uh, all of the relatively common personal care allergens. Uh, and then, so this is a list that I sort of keep around of extremely low allergenicity products. And so uh, the other moisturizers that are on there that are common and easy to get. Uh, so Amlactin Daily Moisturizing Body Lotion, Aveeno Eczema Therapy Daily Moisturizing Cream, uh, like I said, the CeraVe Moisturizing Cream. Uh, let's see here. Now, if, if you're no, a Cetaphil... We get, a, we get a lot of samples of Cetaphil and Eucerin yes. products. Are there any ones there that yes. would so be C on the list? Yep. So Cetaphil, uh, it's the Intensive Moisturizing Cream. So regular Cetaphil cream does still have propylene glycol in it. So if you want to go Cetaphil, uh, the one that I like there is the Intensive Moisturizing Cream. Uh, and then Eucerin, there's actually none of the Eucerins are on my list. Uh, let's see here, but then... How about Aquaphor? Aquaphor, yes. Uh, actually, Aquaphor, let me look here, is not on here, and I believe that's because Aquaphor has lanolin and bisabolo. Uh, bisabolo is a botanical it's, extract. It's, it's lanolin alcohol, I thought. Yes, not but it's... Pure lanolin. But it's still lanolin, so it doesn't make the list. It doesn't so the, make the list. Okay. doesn't make the list. So I'm just going off of my list here. Uh, and so Cetaf that was the Cetaphil one that I like. Now, Vanacream is not on here as well. Uh, their original Vanacream, uh, because it does have propylene glycol in it, but Vanacream Ointment and Vanacream Daily Facial Moisturizer are both on here. And then Lubriderm. Uh, Lubriderm Daily Moisture Lotion Fragrance-Free, if somebody, is, is, that's probably the lowest cost option on here. Uh, are my moisturizers? I talked about the soaps. Those are the two main things that are that are products that go all over. One other thing that I just want to throw in there because uh, it comes up all the time: antiperspirant, deodorant. I get asked that all the time. Uh, so my favorite there uh, is actually the Vanna Cream antiperspirant deodorant for sensitive skin. Uh, but Mitchum also makes a unscented roll-on. Uh, let's see here. So so there are some things you could specifically direct those patients to try to avoid the, the, a higher likelihood of that being a problem. But the two big ones are soap and moisturizer. Okay. And then also I'm going to so address... You're, you're heresy to me because soap, you know, it, it, to me, I think of the alkaline, like my uncle using lava soap yes. or one of those. So you're cleansers, yeah. cleansers right. and moisturizers. Cleansers, right? You yes. Know? Yeah. Uh, and then I, I'm going to address their laundry detergent. So I'm going to have them either use uh, all free clear uh, or I'm going to have them double rinse. And it's not that I'm worried about allergic contact dermatitis from laundry detergent. It's that I'm worried about irritant contact dermatitis from residual laundry detergent in the clothes. The reason I recommend all free clear in particular is they have a different blend of surfactants that are less irritating if there is residue. If they want to keep using whatever laundry detergent, I'm fine with it as long as they always double rinse. Uh, which is going to substantially reduce the potential of residual in there. And I'm going to have them go to a fragrance-free uh, fabric softener, which there are a number of those out there. So now uh, we're, we're, we're at this point, but I'm, I'm trying to get us to your selecting therapy. So you have this patient, and they're being compliant. They got the list. They're following this list of all these products you're recommending. Yep. And so, and they still didn't get better. You're, but, you're, but yeah, but you're, but you're giving them treatment at that time yes. with something. You're not yes. just telling them use these products and come back when they're in their itching and they're they want something soon. So, so what then? Are you treating them 
directing to an atopic dermatitis and see how it shakes out? So probably what I'm going to do in this situation is to make sure they're on a very low allergenicity regimen, give them a systemic steroid, uh, you know, whether that's a three or four week uh, prednisone taper, whether it's intramuscular uh, to give them some relief or if they're, you know, if they can tolerate it, if they can live with, you know, not, they're not going insane that I may give them topical therapy. Uh, my favorite topical therapy for these people, believe it or not, is to take a 50 ml bottle of clobetazole solution and then mix it into a container of one of the moisturizers I mentioned. Like so a that tub, makes one of those tub yeah, size. Yep. Right. So it makes a propylene glycol free class three steroid because uh, you're dilute when you dilute the clobetazole down about tenfold it becomes about a class three steroid and then I, I have them use that i tell them put that anywhere you've got a rash anywhere you don't have a rash and you're just dry use the regular moisturizer right. uh, so i may do topical therapy with that or i'll do a and they're getting a large volume that they could spread yes. they're getting a a lot of bang for the buck, so to speak. So I right. do that instead of a jar of trimcinolone cream uh, because the, many of the trimcinolone creams have propylene glycol in them. Uh, and so and that's why I'm trying to avoid propylene glycol doing that. So now now they come back. And yep. so you you didn't give them a burst of, of uh, prednisone or, I mean, or injections. If, if, but let's say you didn't. They're brittle diabetics and all this sort of thing. And now they're not better. So what's your systemic approach now? So my systemic approach. Uh, so first, I'm if trying the, to I'm trying to narrow it down. You know, well, well, like Dor Dorothy with the scarecrow. Which way do we go? You know, which way do we go? If they are over, if they're an over 65er, I probably start with low dose methotrexate. Uh, the reason I start with low dose methotrexate in the over 65er, number one, as you know, it's it's difficult to get uh, FDA approved therapies uh, covered in those people. But second, in the over 65 crowd, I actually believe in the idea of an immunosenescence dermatitis, where the idea is their T regulatory cells are losing activity first. Uh, and then they get non-specific activation of the effector T cells in their skin, and that is one of the driving factors. And, and there's a couple of articles out there that show that low-dose methotrexate actually increases the activity of T regulatory cells. And so low-dose methotrexate, which to me is probably 10 milligrams a week, will often be my first go-to in the, the really older crowd. I mean, that, that mechanism that you're talking about with the regulatory and the memory makes a lot of sense yeah. with, in, the, in, the, in the world of atopic dermatitis. Cause, cause, and I've always wondered, why the heck does 10 milligrams of methotrexate work? Because we're not really suppressing anybody's immune system with 10 milligrams of methotrexate. Maybe we are a little bit, but it, it's not like we're... So that makes sense to me, as for, especially in the, in the elderly, uh, more, not elderly, but the over 65 crowd. Uh, now, in in the younger crowd, I am very so. I do not, I, I do not choose a drug for anybody because uh, I think of my role. Once we're to the point of you need a systemic drug, it's like I'm trying to set them up with somebody for a date. And if you, Jim Del Rosso, or somebody else came to me, if you came to me and asked me to set you up on a date, I'd say, hey, what about your wife? But for, for other people, if the single people came to me and said, I want to set you up on a date. I'm not just going to say, okay, you want me to set you up on a date? Here's who I'm setting you up with. No, I'm going to say, well, what's important to you? Does it matter how much they make, how emotionally stable they are, how funny they are, how uh, kind they are? Does it matter if they have pets? Does it matter how tall they are? Does it matter what kind of a car they drive? I'm going to ask you what you like in a person, and then I'm going to set you up with somebody appropriate. Yeah, but you better so ask them what they like. 
Because yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that might yes. take me off the list, Matt. You yes. Know? But so I'm going to ask them what they what's important to them. Uh, and, and actually, I, I've got it very narrowed down for me. So my, my spiel, whenever I start to talk to a patient about atopic dermatitis therapy, is I tell them, look, you are so lucky. We, for the first time in the history of the world, have very effective FDA-approved treatments for atopic dermatitis that are very, very safe. Uh, and Jim, I, I, this conflict of interest disclosure, I work with all of the companies. Uh, and then I say, okay, I'm going to give you two choices, and you're going to tell me which one sounds better, and then we're going to talk more about it. And I say, okay. Number one, uh, we could give you a, a medication that's an injection where you give yourself a tiny little shot once every two weeks, uh, typically starts working within a week or so, does not weaken your immune system at all. Or we could give you a pill, typically starts working within a few days, you're not going to have to give yourself any shots, but it does weaken your immune system a little bit. And then I'm say, what, which one of those two sounds better to you? And most patients will have a clear preference for one or the other. Uh, and then I'm going to go into the rest of my spiel about, you know, the, the biologics and the, you know, okay, we've got two different choices here. Uh, one of them has been around longer, uh, probably gets, gets, they both start working quickly, but one probably gets you, you know, gets you better a little bit faster. But the one that gets you better a little bit slower, we can space your shots out from every two weeks to every four weeks after you're on it. Uh, after you're doing better. And then I kind of, what what's more important to them? How quickly it's going to work uh, and how long it's been around or the ability to space the shots out to every four weeks. If they go the route of the pills, then I'm going to say, Okay, uh, so now I got to tell you, you are going to get some warnings from the pharmacy that are going to sound really scary, but you don't need to be scared. The reason you're going to get these warnings is that a different medication that is distantly related to these, when used in people with a totally different problem, did cause some of these things. But the medications that I'm talking about with you, we have a ton of information about them, and you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people treated for years. No, there's not been any increase in any of these risks shown with these medications. Now, what I want you to notice there, I still haven't said what the what the risks are, because if I lead with, oh, you're going to get warnings that these might cause heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, and death, and cancer, it, people's brain shuts off right there. So I started right. by explaining why the warnings are there, uh, and then explaining that all of the information we have has not shown these work, has not shown any increased risk of these things. Uh, and so that, that's the point, which in those things that, that I'm talking about, that you're going to get the warnings about heart attacks, really scary things like heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, death, cancer. Uh, but again, all the information we have about these pills has not shown any increase in that risk. Now, some patients still will say, well, so if, so if they say, so we're sure there's no increase in the risk. I say, well, we can't say that we're sure there's no increase. We can say that all of the information we have has not shown any increase, but it's possible there's a tiny increase and we just haven't seen it yet. And some people say, I wouldn't want to take anything that has any risk. Of okay, fine. Let's go back and talk about the shots. Well, you know, there's, there's a certain risk of these with the conventional drugs that we had before or in the general population. That's exactly right. The, the rates of VTE and MACE and malignancy 
in the JAK inhibitor trials have not been elevated compared to the background rate that we know exists. We have population level data. I agree. I, when you look at that, especially when you take out some of the major risk factors or the group that was looked at with pan JAK inhibition and yep. in people that had a lot of risk factors, rheumatoid yep. arthritis over the you know older over people. The age of 50, yep. So you got to put it in perspective. So yes. Matt, we're, we're we're getting close to where we sort of have to wrap this up. So I need the final, the final, final wrap up, so that Jim Dorasso goes back and does this right finally. So last per, last pearl when I put so then the last thing about a jack and jack inhibitors if they're still okay with it after I've told them all that stuff then I say and I mentioned it does weaken your immune system slightly but the only problem that seems to cause is an increased risk in getting bad cold sores or shingles and we can prevent both of those really easily because we're going to put you on a medication called valacyclovir uh, and as long as you're taking the the pill for your eczema you're going to take that and it's going to prevent you from getting cold sores or shingles. And Jim, I will tell you, every single patient with atopic dermatitis that I put on a JAK inhibitor, from the day they start taking the JAK inhibitor till the day they stop taking the JAK inhibitor is taking valacyclovir 500 milligrams a day. People often ask me, well, what if they've been vaccinated? I don't care. What if they say they've never had a, a cold sore? I don't care. If you have uh, cause maybe they've never, maybe they had some clinical cold sore and now they're going to get eczema herpeticum. Maybe they, even though they've been vaccinated against shingles, that's not hundred percent protection. And maybe the JAK inhibitor affects the, the level of protection, but I know valacyclovir is going to be very effective at eliminating that risk. Yeah, uh, uh, to, me, it. to me, it's, it's real, really a, a no brainer in a sense yeah. to, and the safety of it. Cause valacyclovir right, is incredibly right. safe, incredibly right. cheap. Resistance is not an issue. It, if I was talking about doxycycline or amoxicillin or azithromycin, then maybe I'd be like, well, I don't know if we really want to, but valacyclovir, there's just no reason not to. And then we can eliminate those risks of eczema herpeticum and, and a, of zoster. So Matt, this has been extremely helpful. Um, I can guarantee you will uh, come another time. I, I have to, you know, I'm still running through the corridors of your mind. I'm getting a little out of breath. So I'm going to sit down, take a break and think about the things that we talked about. This is very enlightening. These are the real world questions that people have. It gives them an approach from someone with a lot of experience. And I appreciate you sharing the nuts and bolts from your experience. It's not yeah. just an academic presentation. It's based on what you actually do in the clinic. So thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And one last 30 second thing. If they don't get better on atopic dermatitis therapy, whether a biologic or a JAK inhibitor, uh, maybe try the try a different drug. But if they've been through two drugs and haven't gotten like better, better, really think about patch testing them or really emphasize the importance of an ultra low allergenicity regimen. Matt? I'm sure I'll be running into you and always looking forward to the conversation, right? Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.